the network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is AV Week, episode 115, recorded Friday, November 1st, 2013. Thanks, Lucy. We'll take it from here. Ready. AV, AV Week. Performing scan. Week. Online. This is AV Week. It's time for AV Week, your weekly wrap-up of audiovisual news and information. My name is Tim Albright. I'm your host. How are you? Thank you so much for joining us. With us this week is Sam Malik. Sam has a uh, is an old friend, but he has a brand spanking new title that we're going to take out for a spin today. Sam is the Vice President and General Manager of ASK Proxima USA. Hello, Sam. Hello, Tim. How are you doing today? Doing well, sir. By the way, congratulations. Thank uh, you very on, much. On, on Appreciate it. On the new gig. Uh, also with us is Ted Green. Ted is the president of Stratacon and the editor of Strategy.com. Hello, sir. Hey, good afternoon. Hello to everybody, all three of us. All three. Well, you know, this will be a nice, intimate conversation. How about that? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, We're a tight-knit, tight-knit group. We are. Well, the industry's tight-knit. We're tight-knit. It all, it all <laughs> works out. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about Sony finally giving us something to play with in the realm of 4K. Uh, Dell has taken themselves private, and whether or not that uh, is, a, is a good thing or a bad thing uh, for them and for us both. And also we're going to look and see if we can't find the, uh, the market for, for the uh, middle ground, I guess, when it comes to home automation, the, the market for um, middle-income folks. Uh, but first, we're going to talk about Samsung. Samsung announced this week that they are opening their first plant outside of South Korea. And what, what makes this interesting is the fact that for the first time they are making, uh, specifically LCDs, uh, outside of their, home, uh, of their home turf. Sam, when it comes to where they make these, does it matter? Um, and, and if it doesn't, why pick China? Yeah, you know, this is a really an interesting announcement because everybody's been watching the Korean manufacturers, LG and Samsung, all along. And the, the thing that's made them tough to beat, especially by the Japanese and, and the other manufacturers, is the Korean government subsidizes the plants in Korea to keep all their people working, to keep their factories humming and keep their people busy. So opening up a factory in China obviously is a strategic move to drive more business in China. Um, you know, the Chinese are very particular about, you know, you know, buy stuff that's, that's built here. And, uh, I can only think that Samsung is doing this for the strategy to reach 2 billion people. Ted, is that right? Is that what we're thinking here is that they're trying to reach more and more into the Chinese market? Yeah, I think there's probably, uh, two possibilities here. One could be, uh, just another example of the wheel in the sky keeps turning, I mean, uh, you guys are uh, probably both too young to remember, but I remember when TV manufacturing uh, was centered here in the United States, and then thanks to uh, uh, lower cost of manufacturing and uh, improving technology, it moved to Japan. Um, so it certainly could be a factor. I mean, the lowest uh, labor costs in the world right now are in China, and um, that could be a factor, but uh, probably more likely is um, to open up the Chinese market to Samsung products and doing the partnership with the Chinese 
uh, partner to uh, help open the doors to that market. It's uh, probably uh, more likely that or that's uh, that's the heavier weighted component of uh, why they chose to make the move. It was an interesting move, though. Sam, is this is this kind of a, a throwback to the U.S. when back in the 70s and the 80s where there was a big push to not buy anything that wasn't stamped made in the USA? Is that is that the, the, where the market is in China now? Or is you know, it good? Yeah, I, I'm I'm not in that culture right now, but you know, from afar, it certainly looks that way. And you know, I can't see any other reason because as, after the subsidy, you know, I think manufacturing is still cheaper, you know, in Korea than it is in China. But from on the projector side of the world, you know, we're, we're looking at everything on a worldwide basis. Um, the fastest growing market right now, explosive growth, is China. So I've got to believe this is strategic just to drive more business and, and partner up with China. So, Ted, would it make sense uh, for maybe, I don't know, AMX or Aurora or somebody else to start putting a plan? Let's, let's keep, you know, in, in, in the, proje- in the uh, display market, you know, maybe Sanyo moves to, to, to some other stuff to China. Well, I think the short answer to that question Not Sanyo, is— Sanyo. I'm sorry. Sharp. Sanyo is no more. Sharp. Sharp. I think the short answer to that question is that, uh, you know, I don't know the real number, but it's got to be upwards of 90% of all consumer electronics are made in China right now anyway. Um, so, uh, you know, I would say that um, any manufacturer who is manufacturing uh, anywhere other than China is probably— uh, generating product at a little bit higher cost than they could if they were to move to China. So, um, you know, the answer is it might make sense for them to do that. How, you know, however, you know, lately, uh, there, you know, the pendulum has uh, to some degree swung the other way and Apple and a few other companies have uh, announced moving some of their production back to the United States for their select higher end uh, products. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, you if you're a manufacturer, you can't ignore the influence of China. Um, you know, when I was at Onkyo, we had uh, studied moving our production. In fact, we opened a plant up in Malaysia, um, and uh, we looked at Vietnam, and we looked at, and ultimately, uh, Onkyo has production in China now as well. So, um, you know, it's hard to ignore it. It's, uh, it's a, uh, you know, a very large labor pool. It's a very uh, low-cost environment, and, um, you know, they're getting, they're getting better at, uh, at what they do. Ted, you you mentioned the fact that people like Apple are bringing some of their stuff back to the states. Is that a quality control issue, uh, or is it a labor issue? What is that? Um, For labor-intensive products and with uh, uh, focusing on only a select group of very high-quality manufacturers in China, uh, the cost differential on a a, a lower-run, higher-margin item is lessened. And so it actually can make sense. Uh, to move it back to the U.S. And, uh, you know, I have to tell you that um, there's just a handful of stories of that happening, but we are starting to see uh, a little bit of that going on. We are seeing people reanalyze based on the product segment that they're targeting. Very good. All right, let's move along to HDMI, uh, at least specifically uh, TV1's new HDMI distribution amplifier. Um, Not specifically about this product, but it it brought up another question. The fact that we still have products like this, and we'll probably still always have products like this. I mean, good Lord, I think people are still selling uh, VGA distribution amps, uh, which is still silly. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. We, we are so po- – we're not so post, but they're still we, – we have we've entered into the era of the analog sunset. Um, take your VGAs and burn them. I don't know. Um, but with the uh, – 
maturing of HD base T and with the um, maturing of, of, um, of AVB, Ted, are we getting to the point where things like the HDMI distribution amp is going to be relegated to small uh, one-off uh, installations and people are going are, are people moving towards this this category um, installed cable infrastructure? I think like it or love it, we're stuck with HDMI and we're stuck with it for a few more years. Um, I think that a product like this is kind of a, uh, uh, you know, it's, it seems to be, I mean, I'm, I'm not an engineer, so I'm not the guy if you're looking for a, a technical breakdown of it, but it seemed to me to be a relatively savvy solution that uh, integrators still need in the toolkit and will need in the toolkit for the foreseeable future. Um, it, you know, HDMI, uh, you know, is, uh, you know, is, is a, is a still remains a controversial technology. I still have integrators that, uh, that off the record say really, uh, unkind things about HDMI. Um, but the fact is, is it is the standard and it is well entrenched and for the foreseeable future, um, yeah, we're going to be uh, we're going to be excited about products like this because uh, they help us deal with the issue of HDMI. Do you know why they say unkind things about it? Because you can't freaking lock the connector. That's why. <laughs> yeah, HDMI. true. Yeah, that true. and uh, that and uh, you know, short cable runs and reliability, and uh, you know, it's uh, it's a little bit scary. Uh, Mr. Malik, are we uh, are we entering into an age where we're going to have nothing but category cables and the uh, the um, the HDMI DAs are going to be relegated to small little installations? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's here to stay for a while. I mean, I I probably think we're looking at four to five years, you know, run for HDMI. It's funny because I still have uh, you know some projector products with RGB input on it, you know, part of that analog sunset. But there's still people that that demand it. As I went out to try and buy a notebook, uh, a new laptop, to try and find one that still has an RGB output on it is nearly impossible. Um, ended up shopping seven different stores, finally found one that had both on it. So everything is HDMI that's out there right now. And, and as far as the installs go, you're right. The, the connectors don't lock, but you know the people are comfortable, and, and this is what they got to work with. So we're stuck with it for a while. Well, uh, joining us uh, live from somewhere in the great north, uh, the north, you're straight north of me, aren't you, Mr. Iaselli? Thank you. I apologize for my tardiness. No, that was my I fault, guess actually. I'm somewhere in the north. No, ju- just for the record, it was my fault because I told him the wrong time. So uh, I won't let you take the blame on that. Uh, Kevin Iaselli is joining us. He is the senior curriculum developer for Crestron Electronics. How are you, sir? I'm excellent. How are you guys doing? Good. Uh, it, I'm glad that I got you on just to, uh, for this story. Um, or just in time for the story, uh, we're talking about the distribution amp for uh, HDMI. Are we in a? Obviously, Crestron has uh, an interest in this because of dis, uh, of digital media. But are we entering an era where you know HDMI DAs are going to be you know small little novelty pieces? Well, uh, that, that's an excellent question. <laughs> um, it depends on on your approach to distribution. Uh, My approach to distribution. Um, well, know, I think for this, as as I was listening, as you came in, you were talking about the home. Um, you know, to the home market, uh, will a small distribution type system be appropriated? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, as you get to more corporate or commercial style distribution, obviously HDMI spec not giving us a great deal of distance, you will have to move to a different topology, or at least different infrastructure. 
Um, but I, I think the, the small little DAs, yeah, we, we're seeing them used quite often, even in conjunction with our product. Well, what about, what about Sam's um, observation where when he went to go buy a, a laptop here recently, couldn't find one with an analog output? Are we going oh, to... Well, I, thank, and, God. <laughs> well, thank God. Thank <laughs> God. So are, are, are the, when will the manufacturers of laptops and, and other, um, other computer products move to not just HDMI, but, you know, will it be HD-based T? Will it be AVB? And, and is it going to be an RJ45, or is it going to be the same network jack? Is, it all, is that all that one RJ45 jack going to carry everything? Well, you have to understand, when you're not uh, separating AVB from this for just a second, when you say HD-based T, you are actually, you're propagating HDMI. Uh, HD-based T does not exist without HDMI. It does require TMDS, okay. uh, HD, HDMI chipset. Uh, all it's doing is changing the form factor, if you will. Yes, it's serializing it. It's doing... It's doing, let's say, Ethernet-type protocol, though it doesn't carry IP protocol. It just has a channel for it. Um, does it make it easier for connectivity? Uh, yes, uh, to some. I preface that by to some. To, to, uh, some, use, to, to some integrators or to some manufacturers or to, to some end users? All of the above. Okay. Um, yeah, see, what's I've, I ran into a case not too long ago where an end user had a, a, a situation not get it and they called us and it, it resulted in them using a pretty high quality infrastructure a cat six style if you will 10 gig infrastructure but that last patch cable that they were using was actually a cat three cable oh right but it didn't matter because it had rj 45s on each end uh it's it's one of the things that we see the incompatibility of the infrastructure to the patch cable to the channel to the permalink these are now things, let's say, um, that the AV industry should pay attention to. Um, the don't. infrastructure itself, yeah, we, it's it's one of the things that I'm trying to address in in our curriculum is is saying, hey, we've adopted this infrastructure, right? We like this twisted pair. We like this this RJ45 or this plug modular plug style of connectivity. Understand that there's rules behind using those, right? And we we kind of have turned our back to the rules. So speak for yourself. I like the fiber; it's just expensive. So, <laughs> well, okay. To that question, I would ask you, Tim, how much does failure cost? Well, I know, but it it, co- <laughs> it, it doesn't cost as much as my. It costs more than my budget. How about that? <laughs> oh no, exactly. But what I'm getting at is even even just the standard deployment of when people look at you know distance limitations on a on a cable, right? Well, well, even our even our marketing will say that it's 100 meters, but we're referring to something very specific. We are talking about the channel length, right? Mm-hmm. That yeah. includes both ends of patch cables. In the AV industry, they look they interpret that as that's how long the the cable can be, and then I can put my patch cables on it, and they can be oh Jesus. 75, 80 foot patch cables. They, they can be 100 meters. Yes, they can be 100 <laughs> meters as well, right? So, you know, there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of uh, self-awareness we need to, we, we need to bring to light. Uh, you know, and you and I have seen this, and even Michael at the shows where, um, you know, the folks from Bixie are showing up, right? They have a booth, right? It, it's, it is a taking a global standard, the EIA, TIA, and all of that methodology and incorporating it into our, let's say, AV little world. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving on from our buddies over at CE Pro. Uh, the question was raised by Jason Knott, and so I'm going to raise it to you, gentlemen. 
Uh, report, this, uh, it's called the future of home automation. Where is the middle market? Uh, report predicts integrators serving the middle market, you know, middle income folks of 7,500 to 12, I'm sorry, $7,500 to $12,000 home automation projects uh, are not in the sweet spot for growth. It's time to start thinking whether you're steering the company toward the high end or the low end. Uh, Sam, we'll start with you on this one. When it comes to, first of all, the, a yes or no question, which I hate asking, is there a middle market for home automation? Oh, I absolutely think there is, with, without a doubt. Without a doubt. They're just waiting for the tools and a price point they can afford. And so, well, then the second question is, when do you think that that middle market is going to, to materialize? How soon? Uh, you know, I think it's starting to emerge now in very basic steps, but I, I think we won't see it mature and really become, you know, a wide open market for another year or two. I, I think we're very close to it. The market's demanding it. I think that the, the tools, you know, the, the iPad and smartphones and Androids um, are, are there as far as, you know, hardware capability to support what people are looking for um, as far as an interface. And then people want it. I mean, they absolutely want it for sure, but it just has to be at a price point that people can afford. Uh, Mr. I, I should have started with you, Kevin, because uh, you are a control manufacturer. Uh, yeah. is, there, is there a middle ground here? Is there a, a middle ground, but is there a market uh, in the, the middle of the road here? Obviously not the, the, the very low end. Uh, X10 land, let's call it. Uh, but is there a, a market in the uh, middle-income uh, Americans for, for home automation? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think it's just you have to be careful of how you address it. Um, I was reading this article, and I actually had done some research on the whole Xfinity home system and, and all the control. And Boy, I'll tell you what, that commercial on TV sounds pretty good for only $99 until you actually do all the math. Uh, and then you're above that $12,000 home automation market, yeah. if you will. Um, no, but I think there is. Uh, the, the, you know, the, even let's just say the majority homeowner, uh, which represents that middle market, is definitely interested in seeing. I mean, you see uh, you know, in your daily lives people accessing security, looking at cameras, uh, controlling just you know, simple things. And I think that's uh, gaining a lot of popularity. You know, why not be in touch with my uh, dwell? You might, you might have heard we kind of have a product line that does all of that. Um, so you can <laughs> who, who integrate does? more. Uh, there's a little uh, Cestron, Cestron. I think is the name of the company. Yes. Yeah, they, they are, do control are, stuff. Are there the ones? Never mind. I won't, won't do that joke. Uh, Ted, <laughs> is, Ted, is there uh, where, where is the market uh, in, in the, for this middle market and how soon will it, uh, will it mature? I think this was an excellent article by Jason, and I think he raises a very, very real red flag. I think that the middle market uh, has not developed. Uh, I think that we've seen in other segments of our industry this growing dichotomy. Um, you know, the hottest growing segment in our industry right now, talking about consumer electronics, is absolutely smartphones and tablets, and that's basically taken the business away from desktops and laptops in the case of computers. There's this high-end, low-end thing going on right now in almost uh, throughout the uh, the industry. I mean, uh, you know, Jason defines the middle market here as a price range of $7,500 to $12,000. Well, I can tell you on the residential side, that's where, that's basically the sweet spot of where most of the installers and integrators are. In fact, research that Cedia put out a little bit earlier 
showed that the uh, the average uh, uh, system uh, installation was just a little over ten thousand dollars. And I think what Jason's saying here is, uh, look, there's players looking to get into this game. Um, you know, you have the guys on the high end side. Uh, uh, you know, the the, the control fours. I think he mostly refers to. Um, and, uh, you know, and then we have some new players coming up. Like I did, I've done a couple of stories on UB, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, smart things, um, which, uh, essentially takes the power of your smartphone and goes to sort of a decentralized control format. Um, and you know, I'm not sure they've got it right yet, but, uh, they're definitely getting a lot of interest. They had a lot of interest on Kickstarter and, so uh, I, th- I would say that what Jason uh, was doing here was sort of raising the alarm, um, you know, to be careful if you are in that middle market, um, you know, you could get usurped, um, you know, by the, you know, by the Xfinities and the Fioses of the world, if, you know, if they're successful going after, uh, you know, a large portion yeah, of that business. And that point Sam brings up, I mean, we're looking at, uh, these companies going after integrated mm-hmm. uh, exactly. systems, right? Yeah. Like exactly. again, you're you're seeing the commercial on uh, on you know on TV. So sign up for Comcast Xfinity and get all this stuff, and that just takes the the integrator right out of the picture. Right. So right. okay, so Kevin, as the manufacturer, right? And you, yeah. I'm not I'm not saying this is good or bad. I'm just making a statement here. You guys are, are you work with a channel, um, just like uh, you know uh, Sam does with with ASK Proxima. Uh, you work with integrators and other channels like that. People have to go to those integrators to get the product. Are you? Would, would it be? How do I ask this? It, how would you guys get out? Not necessarily, you know, circumnavigate the integrator, but help the integrator by you know getting in front of the customer like Xfinity. Uh, I don't. I, mean, I don't know if that's advertising or if that's you know product placement or what have you, but it, would it help you know if if your name was was a little bit more prominent than you know Xfinity and and, and Comcast? Um, well, not to put too fine a point on it, but how did I get to you? Well, that's true. That's true. Right? It was pers- I, it was we, personal. We went out. Yeah, it yeah. was personal contact. We uh, we have uh, of course. A great deal of marketing effort that goes towards talking to end users, talking to commercial partners and gaming partners and government, and and getting them in touch with qualified and and our our integrator, let's say market, or I'm sorry, integrator arm, to say you know here's what we can do, and then here are the people that can do it for you. I think right now these not pointing at the middle market per se, but some of these things that, you know, like smartphone apps and some of these devices and Xfinity, I mean, not just, just a generalization. They promote a very cool concept. You don't be, you don't get to be 40 years in the industry without actually knowing some of the hurdles that you're going to, you know, overcome or need to overcome to be successful. Uh, and I, that, I think that's where, folks like us and AMX and, and even Control 4 have a little bit of an edge because when you get right down to it, there isn't an app out there that's going to control everything. You need yeah. something in the middle regardless of how many apps you have on that phone because no one likes, not me personally, I'm not a big fan of app hopping just to get one mm-hmm. thing or another done in the system. Yeah, you're right. And there was... You uh, take away from your experience. Yeah, there was a... a I, I posted something on, on LinkedIn a few weeks ago 
and it, it, it was um, a rather heated discussion about uh, whether we should start, whether uh, touch panels were the way to go or, or the smartphone, the, the, the mobile devices were the way to go. And everything from integrators to uh, uh, tech managers to um, designers weighed in extremely on both sides. And I, I personally, I, I see the value for both. Um, sometimes I look at the iPad and go, hmm, that's an awfully nice $500 wireless touch panel when, you know, and you start, you start, you start comparing because, you know, everybody has budgets, but then there is the added value of a dedicated panel and having it, you know, uh, always connected and you, you're right, you, you're not going to be app hopping back and forth. So, um, but yeah, that was, yeah, well, actually your sentence, you said it best, right? You, you, you get to the comparison by doing comparison by doing two things. One price mm-hmm. <laughs> right you went by price and budget yeah secondly and most importantly i believe is reliability when i go to that device is it on my is it communicating on my network is it actually working do i have to make settings changes what do i have to do to get it to go right versus on the on the touch interface and again i'm 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 pro both i like having a interface in my system as well as that smart device or smartphone as a supplement I don't rely on my smart uh, my smart devices as being the primary. They're always supplemental. Yeah, and I, I'm with you. I, I like having both. I like having the dedicated, uh, whether it's in my own personal uh, my own personal space or whether it's you know a, 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 giving it what I give to the the president of the college that I work for. You know, uh, I like having both because yeah, uh, he's a tech guy, but sometimes he gets lost in his apps. So, uh, all right, moving on uh, from ZDNet. Dell has gone private. Michael Dell, along with a bunch of uh, financial backing, has finally taken Dell, the computer maker, uh, private after so many years. And actually, this is something that he's been trying to do for quite a while. Um, Ted, we'll start with you on this one. Is this not specifically Dell themselves, but from a, a manufacturing standpoint, um, does it make more sense to have a publicly held company or a privately held one? Well, I think that, uh, you know, what's happening here is that um, that Dell just felt themselves sinking into the muck and they've gotten to the point where to move forward, it's not going to be pretty and they had to get out of the public eye. Um, I think by going private, uh, you you have the opportunity to make really substantive and probably ugly changes um, that a public market would batter you for for, uh, you know, extended period of time. Um, but you need to, uh, you know, you need to, uh, you need to get a lot of things right. And, uh, you know, they have a lot of issues as far as uh, the businesses they're in, the product lines that they're offering um, that require a lot of, a lot of fix. You know, basically, you know, public companies, um, you know, when they find themselves way off the track of where they need to be, you know, they have a couple of options. One option is uh, flush the quarter. So you take one quarter, you take huge write downs, you lay off a huge number of people, whatever the ugliness is, and then you bounce back from it. The problem is, is if you have some more serious problems, it's going to require a longer horizon for getting your arms wrapped around it. Um, it's going to take more than a quarter to pull that off. And I think that's where Dell finds themselves. And um, so this is a. Uh, this is a logical move uh, to get out of the public eye to, uh, you know, to uh, to do the sausage making where nobody can see it. And then when you've got uh, 
you know, a tasty product, uh, you know, re-enter the market and uh, and uh, and get back on track. Very nice analogy around lunchtime on a Friday. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Kevin, uh, you work for a privately held company, and uh, the the biggest, I would say, the, the, the biggest competitor to you would be AMX. Um, I could be wrong on that. But they are the polar opposite when it comes to uh, ownership. They are a public, part of a public, publicly held company. Do you think... From you know a mobility standpoint and a, um, a a technology standpoint, does it make more sense, uh, or does it not matter uh, if you're publicly held or privately held? I, I will. Oh, that's a great question. I think if you're publicly held, you you have a tendency to have a little bit more um, fallout from your investors, right? Um, as we know in this world, you can't please everybody, right? And mm-hmm. so. I think when you're when you're a private on the private sector as we are, um, you're controlling your destiny a little bit, which also means that uh, you're you're able to make larger advancements um, based on you know directionality, you know where you see things are going. Can it be a gamble? Any anything can, whether you're private or public. Uh, but but it seems like uh, it's been working for Craftron for forty plus years that we basically answer to our own. Uh, and it's been uh, it's been fantastic. Like I said, some of the technologies that are out there, uh, you know, just look at DM for example. That that started as a as a side thought from another product we were making, saying, "Hey, you know, <laughs> this could be a challenge in a few years. Maybe we should look into this." And here we are today, you know, eight nine years later, actually. Well, some of it also with- has to do with the fact that the the owner in question is also. Uh, a, a an accomplished engineer and, and a yeah brother. he likes to take her <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it does it does it doesn't hurt your bottom line or your your business model if the guy who's uh, you know basically in charge is is an engineer at heart yeah. and uh, yeah he, Kevin, he definitely know, is all over it uh, you know Kevin is I think he, you're really right I mean I mean I think at the end of the day one of the luxuries of being a private company is that you can make a tough decision. You know, sort of the take one step backwards to take two step forwards decision and uh, not have to answer at the end of every quarter, um, you know, on a conference call with investors and analysts, not have to answer to that. And that's a that's a huge opportunity. Public companies, of course, they have greater access to capital. There's there's benefits to going public. And, uh, you know, we'll see how that works out for control Four. Uh, yeah. We'll see if that we'll see if that motivates other people, um, you know, like Crestron to uh, go public. But um, but there's also minuses, and the biggest minus is is that there's no getting around it. Management, you know, ultimately um, ends up putting a lot of their time and their resources into um, you know answering to investors, and um, it's hard to avoid having that that quarter by quarter focus. And some changes require a, a longer horizon and it's easier to do that when you're private no sam we'll let we'll we'll uh, let you wrap up on this one would you rather be as a company uh would you rather be a publicly held or a privately held company uh, i've worked for both and i'd say absolutely private um i think in the dell situation it's uh what's driving that is a bit of ego and and then the ultimate goal i believe is to take dell public again after they turn the company around, I agree wow. with with Ted and and Kevin's comments that you know he's an engineer at heart, but there's a lot of ego involved. That you know he did it once, he wants to prove he can do it again, just as Steve Jobs did. 
come back in and, and you know, turn it around and, oh, look what I did. You know, I'm, I'm great. I did it again. I, I think that just like Best Buy is in the same situation. They need to reinvent themselves. Dell needs to find a, a new competitive advantage and reinvent themselves. And when you're public, you're so accountable. Um, the public companies that, that I work for, you make such stupid decisions at the end of every quarter just so that you can, you know, give the right number to the investors and, and to the marketplace that's investing in your company. And I mean, I totally agree. You spend a third of your time chasing that number every quarter and you're making decisions based on the number, not based on what's the right thing for the company. So, yeah, I think that uh, the, the notebook industry overall and, and networking, Dell, like Toshiba, like Sony, like so many other companies, needs to retool and, and come up with a, a new approach. Um, smartphones and, and, and uh, tablet-type products have definitely eaten into their share in their marketplace, you know, and so they need to reinvent themselves and reposition. But I think the ultimate goal is to take them public once again, you know, in, in three to five years so that, you know, he can he can become a billionaire, you know, twice over twice instead over. of just once over, <laughs> you know. Well, I, I wish him luck then. Uh, <laughs> you're listening to AV Week. That guy right there is Sam Malik from ASK Proxima. Ted Green is here from the Strategy.com group and also the editor of Strategy. And Kevin Iselli, senior curriculum developer uh, for Crestron Electronics. I saw this, this, this next story and I immediately thought of my buddy Kevin. This is from AV Network. Sony brings 4K content creation to the masses. Did you hear that, Mr. Iselli? Woo! 4K. I'm sorry, I'm not paying attention. The PXWZ100 4K camcorder. That's right, kids. You can make your home movies in 4K. Sorry, what was the price of that device? It's a camcorder. <laughs> 6500 bucks. Yeah. Which is not, it's a slightly more than the Z1U about seven, eight years ago, which was. You there. just need two credit cards instead of oh, one. I, yeah. I was just saying, I have like five or six of those just laying around doing nothing. Jeez. <laughs> Okay, but it's a it's a start. It's a at least give me it's a start. It's a st. Oh, come on. <laughs> the biggest the biggest knock and Kevin and I have had this conversation on on air and off uh, that about 4K is the fact that there's no content. Here's content. Here is honest to goodness homemade content. Is it oh, not? I didn't say there wasn't content. You can go to YouTube and get content right now. You can download it. You can't stream it. Well, oh, you think you're going to be able to stream 4K? Eventually. That's a different story altogether, my friend. <laughs> it's a, eventually. Uh, hey, hey, hang on. Hang on. 1999, you were not going to be able to stream 1080p, right? You weren't going to be able to stream HD content. And now you can stream HD content. Right? Sure. Okay. All I can say is mom better get that mole removed uh, and, very her, nice. and her, her mustache <laughs> waxed oh. before you start talking about <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, very good point. Oh, well, yeah. you know, you're right, Tim. I mean, we, we, you and I have had this discussion many times. Um, you know, when looking at especially display technology, you know, my hang up is I've always been more upset the fact that everyone has seemed to have bypassed or is putting OLED off to the side just so they can dangle the next carrot of resolution of 4K in front of you. Where, you know, I'm, I, I, and you, how I feel, I I said let's take this new OLED technology, which, which provides us with a, a an absolute myriad of new mm -hmm. opportunities, and and it seems like most display companies have just kind of just said yeah okay whatever 4K. 
Well, and and I, would, I would agree with you. One thing, though, that some analysts and some industry people are saying, especially in the consumer electronics industry, is why don't we marry the two? Similar to where HD uh, and flat panels were married in the early 2000s. Oh, why yeah. Don't, why don't we marry 4K to OLED and like push them together at the same time? Would that make yeah, sense? Yeah, that would make the, the, the best sense, if you will. Uh, but I think maybe it's more of a business decision to say, hey, let's get you first into a 4K and then let's turn you on to a new technology, display technology. Um, What I like, uh, honestly, is I've seen a couple of these displays at the box houses with the Sony 4K, the you know the, the display, yeah. and and it's not that that cracks me up. It's it's actually the movies that they're promoting underneath it, the digitally remastered 4K, <laughs> which is is quite humorous because you know Tim, you're broadcasting. We we kind of both had a similar upbringing, you know, in the film industry. You're, if you were to rasterize, let's say you're, you're 35 mil, you're well above 4K. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and they're saying that they've taken the source con- material, brought it down to 4K, and then mastered it off of that. Yet when you look at every one of these Blu-rays, they still say, making the ultimate of your 1080p video, right? It's, it's still outputting 1080p. Yeah. So most people are looking at this saying, hey, I'm getting a 4K Blu-ray, and no, you're not. No, you're not. No. So they're stepping down the resolution to match oh, it at that level. Well, yeah, if they're, yeah. if, like Kevin said, if, if you're taking the original solenoid, if you're taking the original film or whatever it is that you shot this on, and you master it in 4K, quote unquote, you're you're busting it down. You're you're wow. reducing the resolution. Wow. Yeah, you're because it's like over 600 DPI or such if you're doing film. So you're you're well in. incredible. Well, is it is it six like you would say the six or eight K. And beyond, actually, what, for film. Yeah, but what is it? it was, I don't remember if it was a, one of your DM classes or another uh, something else I, I read somewhere where they compared, and they, it was just a, it was a graph. It was a beautiful graph. Yeah. The 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 actual picture size, the original resolution uh, in picture size, between you know, and they started with with four um, four eighty, and then they raised it all the way up to eight K. And, <laughs> and good lord, I mean, four eighty is down here as a postage stamp, and and eight K is a is a semi trailer. I, I love how they do that, though. They always talk about resolution and compare it to size. Well, yeah, <laughs> you, but... It, you can't do that, right? You can't, what, but it, it, makes, it makes sense to people. Are you saying right. size doesn't matter? <laughs> <laughs> what I hear. Oh, jeez. Uh, wow. <laughs> you know, this no, is... It's the, it's the, the, the um, analogies we've always seen or the charts we've always seen where they show, you know, a... a four three image and then a, a 69 and then a two three five and and they keep sh- they keep blowing it up like you get to see more of the image almost like you're looking through like you're vignetting your 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 video right like i can't see what's all there but if i had more resolution i could see behind me <laughs> but yeah right? that's true yeah that's how they present this it's like no you're only still going to see what the what the device is capturing it doesn't expose more than what's already there but you understand, but yeah, they, yeah, you understand why they do it. Yeah, because well, no, bigger, uh, is better. Big, well, bigger, better. But sometimes our brains and our, our, you know, uh, you know, I don't know why it is, but a lot of times it's just easier for people to understand it that way. I mean, you're, in essence, what we're saying is there's more information, right? There's more information in an 8K dis- in an 8K screen or an 8K display than or, or source than there is in a 480. Um, there's the same information. It's broken down into smaller bits. Okay. Is the file size bigger? 
Absolutely. So it's but that's because right. you broke it down into smaller bits. So it is bigger. Oh. It's a bigger Ted. spreadsheet. You just don't have to scroll to see it. There you go. That's all. Yep. We're done here. Ted, is this a good thing, the fact that we're getting uh, homemade 4K, or is, is Kevin right the $6,500 price tag is a bit is a bit? Um, you know, I was at the uh, I was at a Sony event where they rolled out their 3D TVs, and then they turned around and, and tried to convince us that it, 3D was going to be the next big thing because they, at, at the same time, rolled out 3D camcorders, and they also rolled out or announced uh, 3D digital cameras. So um, I'm not sure that, you know, that was their same pitch was, look, now we have, we'll have, you know, millions of people creating 3D content and it'll help sell 3D. And it didn't seem to really matter. It didn't help 3D at all. I kind of get what you're saying. And, you know, there's, you know, there's no question that as we do these format changes, we get into these chicken and egg scenarios where, uh, you know, the content creators want to see a large installed base of uh, displays and the you know, the displays can't sell because there's no content. And so, you know, arguably this will, uh, this will help, but, um, I think 4k has a better chance of success only because it's a little more easily understandable by the average consumer. Um, but you know, um, I don't know if it's going to help. It's, uh, we got to wait for the, uh, you know, we got to wait for the, um, replacement cycle to kick in before there's going to be an appreciable uptick in display sales hang on for a second ted you think that it's more it's more easily understood than to to the average consumer the fact that they the the fact that they started with 4k and also uhd tv which is not quite 4k (laughs) i think i I, i think that i think that sometimes what we we do these things in our industry you know, we dumb it down. There's a 50 watt amplifier. There's a 100 watt amplifier. So you know, the consumer can kind of categorize in his mind. Okay. Um, and and so you know, 4K um, is uh, a little bit easier. You know, the the, the juxtaposition between uh, HD and then 4K is a little easier for them to grasp. I'm not going to say they understand all the intricacies of what that means. Um, but is a little bit easier for them to understand than say like OLED, which is a completely different technology and and is you know it's a great technology but requires a lot more explanation. It's a little mm-hmm. harder for the consumer to grasp what that means. This is my two cents. You don't have to explain OLED to them; just show it to them. Just show it to them. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Very true. <laughs> Holy well, you know, also, the, the 4K in the camera, though, Tim. Also, and and Ted's right, but I I think we also have to look at what does this mean by having readily available 4K cameras or, you know, the ability to get these devices to capture the content? It was actually you, Tim, that sent me an article about the broadcast community saying that our infrastructure is nowhere ready for this, meaning broadcast. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. That's correct. Broadcast 4K. So what are we what are we actually doing by propagating a 4k world are we basically looking to the broadcast community and say thanks for coming we'll take it from here yes and yes, japan you are. japan right now is testing an 8k system yeah J- japan has already brought they have technically broadcast ota over the air 8k yeah now, they're testing it right now yeah kirk, kirk cameron shooting his next yet? movie in 8k right now wow what'd you say oh, kevin has anybody done 2k yet no <laughs> they just bypassed it <laughs> Now, here's the thing, to, to Kevin's point more directly, 
yes, that is exactly what we're saying. And, and understand that's a bigger question than you're ask, that, that you're asking. Unfortunately, broadcasters, people who own sticks, who people who own uh, broadcast towers, have the potential of being left behind because you have the next great transport, and that is the internet. That's what we're all talking on now. That's how people are getting this program. And in, I don't know if it's three years or five years or if it's 10 years, but there's going to come a point in time when owning a broadcast tower and three bucks will get you a Starbucks, you know, where it won't matter the fact that you have a broadcast tower or a broadcast license because people will be able to do just that. Buy a 4K camera, produce it and, and shoot it down the internet at a higher quality than what people can get over the air or over the cable. And when that happens, yes, we'll say Thank you for getting us from he- from here. Thank you for un- Uncle Milty, and I love Lucy, and we'll see you next time. But you also have to remember we're we're also relying on that infrastructure, that in that wonderful you know series of tubes we have to be able to support this. No, we're not. We I mean, won't be it, though. It's, yeah, but you're also saying that. Well, I'm sorry. What I'm looking at is as a potential issue is that you have to plan to watch the five o'clock uh, evening news at ten thirty when it's down downloading, or at least has buffered enough that you can watch it. But here's the thing: you you, you don't have to do that now. There, they right, do because it. this is not a real time. <laughs> well, no, but you, you there are. I mean, the my local uh, NBC affiliate. You can watch it. You can stream it from your from your tablet, or you can stream it from uh, a number of of internet enabled devices while it's happening live. So I can do that or I can, you know, download it later and, and, and stream or stream it later rather, stream it on demand. So make sure you're looking at that quality that you're receiving though. <laughs> I'll get we can well, that's get, what I'm saying. Because yes. if we're going if we're going to four K Yes. Think of it like a from a standpoint of a purist. If I want four K, I want four K. I don't want you to tell me I'm you I can watch four K or we're recording in four K, but I'm getting the seven twenty stream. And then we can have a conversation about whether or not the con- the consumer can tell the difference between 720 and 1080. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's looking at it on a smartphone. So 4K yes. is going to be obviously 30 times better than 720. Oh, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> Sam, do you want to chime in on this 4K Sorry, at all? <laughs> or do we, can, can we move on as, uh, from here? Um, all right, let's, let's do the last story here, guys, and we'll, we'll let you go for an, on a nice Friday afternoon. Uh, this is also from Commercial Integrator. Uh, this is written, this is from uh, Chuck Wilson, the head of NSCA. Chuck says that there are five, count them five, metrics that you ought to track if you are a business owner. They are target revenue per employee. This is his number one metric for integrators to track. The backlogging of percentage of annual revenue, gross margin per project, labor utilization, which is always fun, and then cash flow from normal operations. Sam, we'll kick it off with you. Uh, first of all, does is is Chuck right? And uh, is there maybe one or two that you can you can add to his list there? Well, yeah, I agree with all five of Chuck's points. I mean, absolutely. And and revenue, you know, by employee is is probably the key or target revenue. You've got to keep people moving all the time. I was working with a, a design build company uh, earlier this week, and he said that's his biggest challenge is to understand that you've allocated so much revenue, you know, cost resource to a project or job, and and you've got to complete it on a timely basis. You just can't, you know, lollygag and take your time and and finish it whenever to keep the job profitable. So you know, this guy's winning a lot of business, but because his employees aren't you know, acting or reacting in a, in a, you know, uh, a positive and proactive manner, he's losing money on the jobs that he's got and he's driving $22 million in business. So, mm-hmm. uh, 
uh, obviously, you know, the billable revenue is good, but if your people aren't focused and pointed in the right direction, know what they're responsible for, then you could end up losing money, even though the revenues look really good. Um, uh, yeah, I think those are the five, you know, most prominent points that you could focus on. So, what do you tell a business owner whose whose uh, whose employees are lottily gagging? Uh, do you get rid of them, or do you try to motivate them in some way? Well, you know, in, in this particular uh, reseller's case, yeah, he's trying to train them. So he's created a SOP manual, and he takes them all through it and teaches them. Said, "This is how we function. This is what's expected if you're working for this company." And and he gives them 90 days to ramp up and and start performing to the level of you know the policy manual, or or they're gone. He replaces them. Well, at least he gives them the chance, though. So, uh, well. Yeah, you got to train them. You got to yeah. show them the right way, at least. That's true. Uh, Mr. Green, uh, is uh, is is Chuck right here? And and if so, uh, is there any any that you can add to them? I think he's largely correct. I mean, when I work with clients, um, I try to get them to focus on three things. I call it I call it the three P's: pipeline, productivity, and profit. Um, <laughs> you know. It, 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 you know, each one of those is important. It's hard to say if one's more important than the other, but I will say that sometimes running an integration business is a little bit like being the captain of a ship. And, and the success of whether you're going to get to the other shore depends on how many leaks you have in your ship. Every ship has leaks. The more leaks you have, the less likely you're going to get to where you want to go. So that leaks a lot of times has to do with cost. It has to do with labor productivity. It has to do with profitability by project. It has to do with, and, and a lot of times the really stellar performers just do a better job of executing um, on, on the outer edges of all those things. So they're a little more productive. They're a little more profitable. They got their costs a little more in control. Um, in other words, they're plugging more of those leaks and there's a greater likelihood they're going to get to the other shore. So, um, you know, I think in general he does it in a different way, but we're kind of speaking the same language. Yeah, very interesting analogy, by the way. I never heard that. So, <laughs> uh, Mr. Isella, you'll have the last word on this. Is, is uh, Mr. Chuck Wilson right? And is there anything you can add to him? Oh, yeah, Chuck's absolutely spot on. Uh, but I, I do like, I believe, Ted, Ted's analogy of the leaks in the boat, right? Boy, we see a lot of leaks. We really do. Um, yeah. it, it'd, be, it'd be very, very, it's very easy to explain to someone where they are actually leaking. It's easy to train them how to stop the leak. It's harder to convince them that that leak will save them, mm. right? Uh, there is every point that Chuck made in here is, is fantastic. And it, I agree that all five of them are very, very important. The one that I, I think that I might add to this is what is the market doing that's affecting not only the target revenue per employee, that can be a fixed number, but how much gross margin per project is definitely one that people are not paying attention to the most I see. Mm -hmm. uh, the example is, you know, Tim, you can install this Xfinity app and all of a sudden you got home automation. Well, that just took your gross margin per project. If you were doing, let's say, a what you used to do, let's say, as a, I'm just going to throw it out there, as a Crestron job, and that was going to be, a, <laughs> let's say, a $10,000 install. And now an app, which is $99, is supposed to take care of everything for you. You just lost 90% of your gross profit. Now, in turn, what we normally will do is say, well, I'll just do more jobs. Really? Do you have the staff to do that? So if I needed one job to get that ten thousand an hour, it's a thousand dollars ahead. I need to do ten. I need to do ten times as many jobs. 
Well, not, right. not only that, do you have a magic button that you can suddenly create jobs? Exactly. Right. Does the market bear it? Uh, we we've seen this a lot, at, you know, from our integrators, and it's not, you know, we understand that this world is competitive. Um, they ask us to make more cost-effective products. They ask us to make, you know, the the word I hate using the word, but you know, make it cheaper. Mm-hmm. We can't make it cheaper, right? Because we use very high-quality stuff. It, it's the the bill of materials is what the bill of materials is. Uh, you know, we have to keep our doors open too. But the the point I was trying to make was, we we see this a lot, and what we're seeing is, especially for the residential uh, marketplace, is that the, their businesses are suffering based on people wanting to do more with less. Remember, less is not more; less is less. Right. Well, if you're, an and I'll, I'll never forget. Uh, I'll never forget. There was a guy. I think it was Mr. Klein. Uh, he basically said once to me, salesmanship begins when the customer says no. Right? You got to sell it. You got to get your, you have to get your gross margin per project up. You have to make sure your cash flow is definitely there. Uh, I always relate it to a restaurant, right? You don't see restaurants that stay in business by first time clients. You have to build yeah. regulars. Right? Yeah, you have to have cash flow. But yeah, Chuck was right on. I think uh, the, I, I think there's probably a big question mark in a lot of uh, organizations that don't know, even his number one, the target revenue per employee. How much revenue do you may need to cover that individual, you know, their benefits, their salary, everything, and still remain profitable? I think that's often overlooked. Yeah, how much do you need to make every time that person goes out the door? Exactly. And you know, Tim, I would I would quibble about one one minor point that Chuck makes here, and that is that he talked about the need to be aware of your gross margin per project, and he said because uh, he re- attributed it to thin equipment margins. Um, most of the clients that I've worked with, when they have profitability problems, it's almost never the manufacturer's fault. It's almost always because they have estimated labor hours incorrectly, or there uh, or the leaks take effect. Um, it, it can be issues that, you know, of, of poor project management, inefficient project management. It rarely is uh, uh, attributable, attributable to declining equipment margins. Um, it's almost always because of poor productivity, poor efficiency um, that they really don't address. In fact, there's a, a colleague of mine that's out there that, that preaches to integrators and installers to not bother doing job costing just inflate your margins, you know, the idea being that, you know, that'll be a bigger cushion. So uh, in essence, you can, you can you know, cover your inefficiencies with a, with a higher margin. And um, personally, I think that's the wrong approach. I think you need to really be in touch with your costs. I think you need to look at your estimates both before the job and after it's complete to see where, you're, where you missed the mark and how you can uh, be more uh, effective at uh, your estimations and I find issues more around that than a, than about um, you know declining margins from the manufacturers. Well, yeah, if you, if you're not doing some sort of of, of post job you know survey of of yourself, you're not yep. going to know where your leaks are, and, and you won't you're be asking to fix them. for trouble. Oh, absolutely, you're asking, you are. And those things that you mentioned, those are things that you can learn as a, as a project manager, as a business owner. You exactly. can learn how to do your your your, your labor estimations better. <laughs> If you're if you're looking, yes, you yes. can. Yeah, if you're looking. So yeah, right. Ted. Yeah, quite honestly, that's uh, that's where I, I joked with Tim earlier. It that's exactly where I came up with the saying, um, "How much does failure cost?" Yeah. 
because <laughs> you know the the front end portion, people will try to marginalize the hardware. Yep. They'll try to go uh, use disparate products, especially now in the digital world, if you will. These these products don't all play the same way, right? And and it, you'll get into some very catastrophic situations that really beat you up on the end of troubleshooting and trying to get that last you know 15% of the job done so that it's stable and operating come to find out it was this you know little widget that was put in to save $10 on the front end but it ended up costing you $5,000 on support in the back end exactly yeah. All right, guys. Good conversation today. Thank you so much. Uh, that's going to do it for this week. Uh, Sam Malik, the Vice President and General Manager of ASK Proxima USA, has been with us. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Tim. Where can people find you or, or ASK Proxima? Uh, ASKProximaUSA.com. Okay, very good. Also with us is Ted Green. Ted is the President of Stratacon and also the Editor of Strategy.com. Thank you, Ted. Uh, my pleasure. And where can people find you or Strategy? Uh, they can find me uh, at Ted Green on Twitter, or they can go to uh, strategy.com, that's strata-gee.com, and click on the Contact Us page, and that's me. That's you. All right, and last but not least, thank you so much, sir. His name is Kevin Iselli. He is the Senior Curriculum Developer for Crestron Electronics. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Where can people find you or Crestron? Don't look for me. Okay. Uh, no, you can, <laughs> you can of course find us at crestron.com or you can reach me at K first name, uh, first letter of my name, last name Iselli, I S E L L I, at crestron.com. Yes. Uh, if you want to follow me, uh, it's T D Tim David Albright uh, at Twitter. But more importantly for me and everybody here, go by the website if you would please. Avianation.tv, avianation.tv. You'll find this program and a host of others. We have an education-focused program, a control-focused program, uh, live staging and events, and even a uh, social media and marketing. So go by the website if you would, avianation.tv. Thanks so much for listening. That's all the time we have for AV Week. Thank you.